Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Arcanex Sessions, episode 158. On today's show, Donna and I are joined by Cruz Garcia and Natalie Frankowski of Way Architecture Think Tank. The last time we had Cruz and Natalie on the podcast was for our Next Up series at the inaugural Chicago Architecture Biennial. We've since also had Cruz on the podcast to discuss the unfortunate changes at Taliesin School of Architecture, where Cruz and Natalie were both visiting teaching fellows. On each of these instances, we had a limited time with them to discuss highly specific aspects of their work, so we wanted to have them back on to learn more about their backgrounds, how they met, and what drives their work. If you've been following them, you'll know that they recently published a book on their work entitled Narrative Architecture. They've also published a powerful anti-racist manifesto on unmaking architecture as the fight for equality pushes forward, propelled by the Black Lives Matter movement. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we enjoyed speaking with them and learning more about what makes this couple so important and relevant in today's architectural discourse. Cruz and Natalie, it's great to talk to you guys again. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks a lot for the invitation. We're really happy. So the last time we spoke was not too long ago. We were talking about the situation at uh, Taliesin School of Architecture. And then uh, we also had a short 20, 30-minute conversation at the Chicago Architecture Biennial a couple of years ago. So today we've got a little bit extra time and we're not, you know, we just have you guys without anybody else. So we're hoping that maybe we can kind of dig a little deeper into your backgrounds and find out, you know, where you guys are coming from, provide a little context about your work before we start talking about the latest stuff that you've been doing. So, Natalie, you are, you're French, correct? You're from, from France? Yes, that's correct. So, yeah, I was actually born in Scotland. That's like a, <laughs> a longer story because my, my dad is Scottish. But, yeah, I was raised in France and I studied architecture there in uh, two schools. Uh, I started uh, first in the School of Saint-Étienne and then I finished my studies in the School of Architecture of Paris-la-Villette. Ah, okay. And did you guys uh, meet in in France. <laughs> so this is going to be a really uh, complicated story. So oh, well, let's, yeah. let's go, let's, <laughs> Cruz, let's go to you uh, before we get to, to uh, where and when you guys met. Let's, let's talk about where you, you're from. You're from uh, Puerto Rico, right? From uh, Rio Piedras in Puerto Rico. And that's where the, where the main university is, of the University of Puerto Rico. That's where I study. So I come from, from the capital of, of, of Puerto Rico. Uh, and I studied there, you know, my, my, all my studies, my, uh, my undergrad, my grad school. You know, I think it's a, a great university uh, that is kind of overlooked. Uh, so we have uh, some really amazing critical thinkers and, 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 you know, the colonial thinkers there. When I finished school, I had some plans to, to do some, get some working experience first before going to keep on studying, like maybe do a doctorate or something like that. So I, um, I, went, I moved to Brussels to start working a bit. And then I met Natalie there. But then, so this is really important because I, I think it sort of defines our practice is that when we move, I moved to, to Brussels in maybe September 2008 or, or August. I really don't remember exactly, August or, or September. And uh, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy two weeks after I arrived. <laughs> oh, so right. that was September. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's like, welcome to the professional job. Uh, you know, your professional mm-hmm. career is um, like now is a kind of time of crisis. And, you know, we work in some competitions together and in Brussels. And, you know, it was like a really, it's, it's really easy. It's easier to understand 
today that we are talking about this because it's really similar to what's happening. So it was like, uh, you know, the race of uh, like a kind of populist wave. There was a lot of uh, instability, uncertainty. People were more asshole than usual because of this. <laughs> and then, so we, we fairly quick, we realized that, you know, whatever we were doing, it was not what we meant to be doing. You know, like we, we, we thought that architecture relationship with the market, it was really weird. But what was interesting, just to go back a little bit on that, is because so we both had like a very interesting experience at the end of our studies that led us to understand a little bit more the potential of architecture or how we wanted to, to address, um, address the field. And I think both of us, Cruz and I, really... Like, so we started to experiment a lot with text, with theory, with writing, with movie making. And I think that forged a lot how we have to practice. So we were already trying to define ourselves in, with, within the, the field of architecture. And I think just being out of school and starting with this you know, big crisis in 2008 really pushed us to go even further in a way that we had to try to make our voices heard somehow because the usual path was not the path anymore, right? Everything was kind of put into questions, but I think that was also like very fundamental in how we started to practice. Yeah, so then we moved to Amsterdam after, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Geert Wilders, it's basically Dutch Donald Trump. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> That's Enough an easy said. way to describe it. <laughs> so 2000, I mean, he looks like the nephew. It's um, 2008. He had just published this uh, propaganda film, anti-Muslim, oh, okay. in the Netherlands yeah. called Fitna. And it became, you know, it, it was really highlighting the, that sort of... Um, really bad, xenophobic, uh, racist uh, character that we see today, like everywhere. But it was like, I mean, for me, it was shocking, right? Because I, I was avoiding trying to go to the US because I knew more or less, you know, being black in Puerto Rico and what I may expect. So I moved to Europe, but I forgot that Europe is the actually the, the you know, the continent that, that imported all that to this continent. And it was like getting a like firsthand uh, brush with all that stuff. So I got quite sick of my experience in uh, living in the Netherlands. You know, it was like, it was hard. It was really hard, not in the economic sense, but in the, in the social sense, I was having like a bunch of like racist encounters and stuff like that. Also a lot of solidarity, you know, of people that look like me, they were kind of helping and stuff like that. But, but other than that, it was like a very bad experience. And, and we decided. So were you guys, were you working in firms in, in Amsterdam? Yeah. And I, so Natalie was working in Delft. And, we, we were, and I was working in Amsterdam, a small studio, and we were, but of course, we were living in Amsterdam, but I was working in a, like a local, small studio, and, and I had a different type of experience. I was not in an international studio, so I was having, having like first-hand experiences with people in the streets, sometimes that were not so pleasant. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I could speak Dutch, you know, I look like, uh, I mean, I look like, a, like, like what I was, an, an immigrant, right? So... So, um, so, you, so sometimes it was kind of hard to deal with those stuff. And, you know, I was like, I just came for the architecture, but I'm leaving because of the racism. So then we decided to, uh, to move to Beijing. Like we didn't have any money or anything, but it was like, it was 2008. So US is on fire. <laughs> Latin America, I know the pace of things. You know, I come from Puerto Rico. So it was kind of out of the question. I said like, you know, I already came all the way here and I met this really nice French lady. So... <laughs> 
maybe our last trip is gonna be going to go to China to see you know what happens. And I went there. We moved to Beijing in 2009, and I had a really bad first experience working for a kind of famous guy. It was terrible. You know, lied to me, didn't do my visa, took half of my money. It was really bad. And then I was like, man, I made the worst decision I ever made in my life. And then I made this French woman come all the way here with me. So, uh, <laughs> I think we really screw up and I, I don't even have money to go back. But I mean, the thing is like, if you run out of your of your time, probably the Chinese will pay you the ticket to kick you out. But but uh, it, so it was really, you know, stressing and it was winter and it was during the, you know, the, the anniversary of the CCP. It was really bad. And I was like, fuck, you know, I really screw up and I don't know what to do. And then I met this uh, other Chinese architect that is the most amazing, you know, mentor I had called Janke. It has a studio uh, it's called Standard Architecture. You know, now it's kind of more known. He has the Aga Khan Award and all that. But at, at that point, you know, he was just like, it, it's like a small practice in Beijing, right? So he's not making shopping malls or nothing like that. And I remember I did two interviews with him and, you know, he asked me how much I want to get paid. He said, this is fine. You know, we want people that want to be, you know, the best architects in the world here. You know, we want people that are really trying to change the world. And, you know, it was amazing. So it saved, it saved our lives pretty much. And then, you know, and then we stayed for several years in Beijing. And Natalie, where were you working during this time? Oh, at, uh, in Beijing, uh, I did uh, some years uh, with Stephen Hall. Oh, okay. And also I joined Shanka yeah. for a while. And after we had our own practice. Yeah. Okay. So you, were, you weren't having as miserable a a time as Cruz was, but you could see that he was miserable. <laughs> no, we were both. Uh, I mean, miserable. it was, of course, like he's taking some risk because we were moving in a country that we didn't know that was quite far from, I mean, Cruz already came <laughs> to, to Europe, so he already did like quite a big job. And I was as far we were, as I can be without getting close. <laughs> so we, we had to learn, a lot of learning to do. And Beijing also is quite a fascinating city, which, I mean, it became our home, but of course it's also like a very big city it has its own way of operating. Yeah, 20 so million people. Arriving like this was, yeah, was... <laughs> Without really not, not, not knowing anybody or not knowing the language and having no money, you know, and not knowing really how the place works. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a shockingly kind of different environment than, than what you're coming from. I, I've always been curious about, about what what drove that decision for you guys to to go to Beijing I mean, was that part of the reason you just wanted to you wanted to try something completely different, or was it economically driven? Considering the no, uh, it was never economically driven. So the thing is, oh, like, yeah. so usually I I try to uh, say this, you know, in different ways because I don't know if people are ready to handle it. But it, it was always about the same the same shit we're fighting today. It was yeah. all because of a bunch of racist experiences. Simple and so. T- did you experience that any racism when you were in Beijing? No. I mean, yeah, from, from foreigners, but not from Chinese. Hmm. Only from foreigners. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I always tell to people, and I get, you know, people would bash everything that I say, you know, and they would gaslight and everything. But I, I was taking a, a, a holiday from racism for me. Living in Beijing mm-hmm. was like having a seven-year holiday of, you know, things that you have to go through when you are in this hemisphere in Europe. Uh, honestly, I felt like that. You know, I, I'm not saying that it's a perfect place, of course, and there's things happening with ethnic groups and stuff like that. But this really, you know, straightforward way of, uh, you know, racism and white supremacy and stuff like that. No. What about Natalie for you as a woman? Did you feel like there was uh, like you were treated any differently than you were used to being treated in Europe as a as a female architect? Um, yeah, not. I, I don't know if I would 
see a difference so much. Of course, I mean, the typical field of architecture sometimes can be quite rough for women and quite demanding in a way that you always have to prove yourself a little bit more than... Uh, a lot more. <laughs> a lot more than... <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, but... I mean, the, also in the how we were operating, and because I didn't speak the language, I didn't really have, you know, like a first-hand exchange with that. So I, I cannot really speak speak about it because I, I didn't really see any, you know, difference on that. On another side, Beijing for us was really safe. quite safe. So of course, um, you know, I, I want to be careful because it's my own experience. So I, I'm, I don't know how real it is, but for a foreigner. As a woman, uh, the city was quite safe, which was also like quite a, a different experience because coming from Europe, where you know living in Paris, you you have a different experience of a city. So yeah, that, that was interesting yeah. for us. In that way, it was uh, an opportunity to uh, you know like grow up in a place, you know. And, and I also also tell this to people, and you know, and I tell it to Beijingers too, you know, people that were born there, like. So Beijing is not really a city for people. Beijing is a city for a parade. So it only makes sense when there's a parade. Therefore, yeah. nobody really no, nobody really belongs there. So everybody's kind of in the same boat. You know, of course, there's there's a you know different there's different classes and there's like migrant workers and stuff like that. But you know, uh, among the really large working class and middle class, there is this really uh, kind of we is homogeneous in the struggle in a way. So it's quite easy somehow, at least for us, you know, or maybe that tells mm-hmm. a, a, about our level of desperation to become home. And, and that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we opened a gallery there in 2014 that was like an experiment too. And it, it, and it was more, mostly dealing with art artists all around the world, but also in Beijing, you know, with some of the most interesting young artists and established artists. So that, that also provided a, an opportunity that wouldn't have been possible anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I, like we, we, we didn't come from an art background. We were not really... A, legitimate institution you know between commas uh, and the fact that we were working you know with with uh, with all the people that were like you know some of the amazing artists that are represented by pace gallery or by you know all the like heavy hitters you know mm-hmm. they were all looking forward having a, a space to have like conceptual work you know and, and talk about and talk about culture and, and politics and art and that was really amazing this is uh intelligentsia gallery yes yes so I mean, as Puerto Rican and a French woman coming to Beijing with no experience uh, running a gallery or, or curating, I mean that must have produced something very unique. I mean, sometimes the most interesting projects come from people that are not embedded, you know, in that in that world. You know, so that's that's where you know fresh ideas come. So that, and it wasn't like that, you know, and, and and I can say this because I know that we didn't gentrify the neighborhood because uh, in Beijing the only gentrifier is the government <laughs> the gallery. You know, there were like ten galleries that pop up around, you know, and even the graphic design of the main institutions were changing to to look like you know the curatorial statement they were looking at like to what we were doing. We were collaborating with a bunch of like local Chinese curators or you know people from Germany or people that were passing by. So it was I feel it was the the most intense institution you know of art for mm. some time you know in china you know and the media were writing about it in such a way right like at some point we invited a friend of us uh, Xia, uh Xia Guo, and and we created he created a show i mean we were we were working as the galleries and as artists 
35 solo shows in 35 days, right? So we were doing oh. a press conference and they were like, you know, established artists, you know, and, and they were like every day press release, every day the media will come. They were like, be like everything, you know, and at the same time we have to go to Europe to lecture and come back. It was, I'm glad that we moved up, moved up, moved out of China because the pace was too much. So I maybe mean, we would have died already, but, <laughs> but, the, but the, the things that yeah. we could do because of the level of solidarity, you know, mm-hmm. and the people that were really willing to, you know, let's go for it. It, it was amazing and it cannot be replaced. So mm-hmm. it, that's like a, you know, life changing experience. And so how, how long was that? How many years were you doing that, that sort of pace of just, just frenetic? The space was always there, but the gallery, we opened the gallery the first show. So just to give a bit, also a little bit of background. So it all started, we did a competition for a, for the biggest museum in Russia. And somehow we got into the final. It was like 50, 50, 50 by portfolio. Sorry, 50, uh, like five studios by portfolio. So that was like famous studios, like Office Kirsten Gears, David Van Severen, Stephen Hall, Alejandro Lavena and whatever. And five anonymous, which were... I think four four Russian studios and us, you know, somehow we managed, <laughs> we went to Russia to design this, uh, you know, in the final of the presentations and whatever. So we were working with a museum and we were thinking, you know, how can you make an institution that brings art to the people, right? Like it's not just you pay a ticket and you go there, you know, for the, for the elite and for the bourgeoisie or whatever, right? And then we didn't win because of politics or whatever reason, right? Even if we still think that it was the best project. At the end, they scratched the project because it was, uh, it was, the thing the client shows, it was too expensive. It was, it was a tower. It was, didn't make any sense. So they canceled the project. We went back really sad, you know, because we lost this, even if we were told by everybody, you know, that it's like, there's no way you're going to win because of politics. <laughs> got our hearts broken. We made a project called The yeah. Palace of Fail Optimism. You know, that was a narrative on, you know, how to shove all those projects that fail inside a project. And then we had this idea of like, we're broke, but I mean, we have now all this money of this competition, but what can we do as an institution here to change this? I, I feel like all the museums and the galleries are all focused on one, you know, commercial mm-hmm. art in a way. Mm-hmm. How can we make something that is more for the people and for us, you know, because we are the people <laughs> somehow. And uh, we we call one of those uh, agents that find apartments in the city. And we said like, you know, can you find something in a hutong in the center of the city that has no windows and it has a high ceiling? And she's like, really? You want those things? And I said, yeah, we're looking for something like that for, you know, we want to make a gallery because we've been painting for a while. You know, we started painting compulsively in Beijing in our studio and making art. And, and But we didn't we didn't find an outlet to do anything with them because, uh, you know, who are we anyways? Right. So we said, like, maybe the best thing is maybe make a space and bring the artist, you know, to where we are rather than us trying to go out after the galleries and all that. And then so we found this place, this place, it was 180 square feet. That is really small and it didn't have windows. So it was perfect. And it was all white. So we, we paid the rent. We told the we told the landowner, you know, we're going to replace the lights. We're going to put some neon lights and whatever, you know, like spotlights and stuff like that. And then we had a plan. We said we're going to make a show with our own work, because then we don't compromise with anybody, you know, we don't make, we don't, we don't disappoint anybody and we're going to announce it. And if people come, we keep going. If it fails, we turn this space into our studio. Smart. And we made the first show. So people came. And, you know, galleries, you know, actual galleries came, you know, from, from, you know, like nice, you know, important institutions. And they were like, this is really interesting. I don't know what, what it is, but it looks really interesting. Right. Then second show, we already made the first group show. And from that on, we kept making group shows with, we had over 200 artists 
from six continents, everywhere except Antarctica, pretty much. Almost 100 shows. And then after Talking we were working with museums and other galleries because it was so cool that it was like, everybody was like, do you want to do a show I in our gallery? Also, what, what we really wanted to do is like, because uh, for the ones who know Beijing, the main areas for art are really outside of a center. So there's already like a kind of, if you go there, you really go because you want to see art. And yeah, what yeah. we wanted to see is like, also how can we really bring art in like the... The street life, like a like a kind of more for us, like a normal, you know, um, area where people like us would live, where everybody would live, right? And I think also uh, it became a place just for the event in itself. So it was really interesting to see. You know, people would come, we would have the gallery packed with, I mean, nobody could move at the end because it was so small, but <laughs> it was also easy to feel for us. But the street became also, you know, extension of a gallery. People would meet, uh, have drinks. Yeah, it was chat. in a kind of dirty corner, you know, in front of a dumpster. <laughs> but all of a sudden, they, that, that street that was like, you know, a back street became cool. So people knew what it was. We would meet people everywhere and they would know who we were because we were running that space. We met like some of the most amazing people in Beijing because of that, you know, like photographers, artists, you know, and a bunch of collaborators that we're still working with today. And we had an amazing, you know, one of our, our collaborators that she's an architect based in, 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 in Shanghai, uh, Chen Hao. She apparently, you know, I cannot tell because I cannot read Chinese, but apparently she's amazing writing. She's an architect too. She's amazing writing Chinese somehow. Every, every Chinese person that read the press releases, you know, the translation in Chinese, will always come to us and say, who wrote this? Wow. And so it became also, you know, even the text of the thing. We will, we will collaborate with poets and filmmakers, you know. It was the most... Uh, it, I think, again, it's like one of those things that I, I was always kind of jealous of people that grew up during some modernity mm-hmm. at some point because yeah. we kind of missed yeah. it. But being there, that was the modernity, you know. It was happening, you know, be, before our, our very eyes and we were we were participating in that modernity also we had like very kind of clear idea of what we wanted to do for every like every exhibition had to be a group show with, exactly with people, with people from, from everywhere. everywhere because like, chinese uh, and other people right because right. Uh, there would, uh, that's also a problem too that when people go to china it is still that sort of colonial way to look at the world so all the scholars and all that they only want to see things that look chinese to them right and work with chinese artists but they forget that there's also other people that are there too working and that they are, you know, people in China also are interested in, in what, everything that is happening everywhere else. You know, like we are, like we all are. So there's no, the, the, the idea of the insularity or the island, you know, it, it's not fair. And there's an obsession, you know, to read everything through the political lens, you know, of the cultural revolution and so on. So we also provided, I feel, an outlet that was not uh, sinocentric. And it was also a relief for everybody. So you can make whatever work you want, you know, because everybody's free to work with so, whatever they're interested in. It's an incredible story. I mean, it, it's, I mean, people are, tr- uh, you know, try to make the, that kind of an impact, uh, yeah. you know, in their own backyard. But the fact that you that you were able to go to the other side of the world. And, and I mean, you know, I've been to China a few times and it's a very, it's the most foreign feeling environment that I've I've personally experienced because it's the culture everything is is very different and I mean in my experience very few people spoke English I mean the fact that you were able to pull something off like that in China I mean must have been pretty exhilarating yeah it, it was amazing but again it was home so I never saw it like to me personally, Beijing reminds me of what I come from in Puerto Rico, in Rio Piedras. Uh-huh. I always tell to everybody, it's like Rio Piedras, you know, 
in steroids multiplied by 200. But, you know, again, the, so the people, I think is the important thing here, right? So people that we're working with and that we still work with, they make all the difference, right? Because everybody's like really, in that sense, really open-minded and really into collaborating and really friendly and hands-on. And we were able to do this. All, all of this never dealt with money, right? So it was mm. like a, an anti-capitalist yeah. enterprise. More spontaneous too, because sometimes it was really because you meet people who, and you're really interested in what they are doing and you think, okay, let's do something together. And then something happened. So I yeah. think it was all really also coming from the yeah, idea. It was authentic. Right. Yeah. But you were working in other firms at this point, or had you already started your own firm? So our, our firm started in 2008. All right. When we met, we found a way and we started writing and doing whatever we can, but we always needed to work, right? Yeah. I was working with standard architecture. Janka was really honest since the beginning. He said, like, you know, I don't want people here to be working for me forever. So I, I love that you have something going on. And he always helped with that, you know, and I, I would work yeah. from 2 p.m., you know, and he would be super supportive and I would get my own projects and, and I would have all the time to do all the other stuff. And then when the gallery got out of control and after the competition in Moscow, then I, I pretty much was working full time as a worker, uh, you know, art handler, writer, curator, you know, whatever, you know, agent. I was doing everything. So somehow the office always travel with, I mean, because it's uh, around us. It's us. So we we moved with our practice from Belgium to Holland, then to Beijing. And then sometimes, as was mentioned, it extends when we collaborate in bigger projects. And then otherwise it's also... So it's pretty flexible in that sense. Right. Was there much crossover between the the work you did with the gallery and, and your practice? Or did you keep those completely separate? No, so, so this is the funny thing, right? So at the beginning, we were really obsessed with keeping everything separate. So we have a name for everything and a business card mm-hmm. for everything, right? Like in Beijing, it was all about business cards too. So we have one business card that said Intelligentsia Gallery. When I, w- when I wouldn't I wouldn't tell anybody, you know, that I'm an architect because, uh, you know, if you're an architect, artists look at you weird. <laughs> then we have the Way Architecture Think Tank business card. And then we have an art practice too. That was called Garcia Frank. It's, it's called Garcia Frankowski, right? So it has its own website and everything still today. So when we will deal with galleries that will be interested in our work as curators or as artists, we will be either Garcia Frankowski or Intelligentsia mm-hmm. Gallery. But they don't care about architecture. They don't, they have no interest whatsoever. So it didn't matter. Later in time, it was impossible to keep it separate and it didn't make any sense anymore. But it was at the beginning, it was really important for us to like take the challenge of dealing with each of these worlds individually to see if we can actually make make it in each one of them, you know, and and be convinced that we have something to offer that is critical and, and you know, and has something to, to, to give to the world. And, you know, later on, it was like, there's no need anymore to keep them separate and, and kind of like moving back from Beijing to US, it made it more irrelevant that we are separate things because now everybody knows that we are architects again. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter really. So now it's like, we, we can use every name, you know, Garcia Frankowski still exists and is us, but if it has to do with architecture, it's always way architecture think tank. And then there's other projects that we started after, like loud readers and stuff like that, that kind of carry with the legacy of intelligentsia, but it, it always responds to the place. It's not a formula that you can repeat, but rather everything is really contextual. You know, intelligentsia is a project that is really a, a Beijing project. So what brought you back to the U.S.? Aaron Betsky. <laughs> Betsky. Ateliesen. So, okay. So before that... Sarah Herda had put us in the Chicago Architecture Biennale. And that was, I think that was a really bold uh, decision. 
apart from the huge wall they gave us that was amazing for us in the cultural center, the fact that she shows us being in Beijing, it, it was kind of polemic there because uh, people couldn't understand why would you choose this non-Chinese, you know. But at the end, it's not a, it's not it's not Olympics, right? You're not representing a country, but rather we are based in Beijing. So we are a Beijing. We were a Beijing's Beijing-based practice. We were there, so we were already kind of showing things outside. That was our first trip to US. Aaron had written some things about us. He happened to be curating the Shenzhen Hong Kong Biennale. Mm-hmm. Our friends, uh, Merv Bedir and uh, Jason Hilgerford, they they were organizing some kind of alternative education part in the Biennale, and they have invited us to give a talk. So they they flew us to Shenzhen. But when Urbanus heard that we were coming, they they invited us to talk to give a to give like a talk about their work. And we, we we accepted and it was kind of like trolling the, the their developer attitude. <laughs> presentation about narrative architecture, you know, how to deal with this like uh, conglomerate that want to design everything and it's like really large and capitalist in a way. Adam was there and he was laughing a lot, I remember. And then he told us that he just became the dean of this school that used to be the home of Frank Lloyd Wright and the people live in the desert. And I was thinking, man, sounds like a bunch of hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> And then he said, like, oh, you should come to do a lecture. And we're like, yeah, fine, you know, we go, whatever, to give a lecture. But I mean, Adam Bensky, of course, we will go. But then after a while, he sent us an email saying, like, actually, you know, we have this position called the Visiting Teaching Fellow. Would you, would you like to come here for a semester to teach? You know, like, the housing is included. You're going to live in your know, right buildings. And you're going to, you know, deal with this history. And you can teach, you know, what you want. And we want to make the, you know, make this into a contemporary school, you know, that is critical, like your work and whatever. And, and we were like, yeah, sounds fine. And then we flew to, uh, to Wisconsin. So we left Beijing and we arrived to Spring Green in the middle of the night. So Adam drove us in the evening, in the night, and it was super dark. So I didn't know where the hell I was. We just took this, like, I don't know how many hours. Wait, so you flew from... Beijing, the, one of the most urban locations on the planet. And then you arrived into a little car in, at in the dark. With friends, you know, 20 million people right. outside. We're hanging out, blah, blah, Being stay in the home. Street, a party at home people. with our friends, you know, from Germany, <laughs> from everywhere. And then literally flew, went in the car in the dark, slept the night, woke up in the middle of the woods. Like, what the hell is this? Yep, in the middle of the woods. <laughs> it was creepy wow. too, because I, the first time we heard coyotes, we almost died of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird animals screaming and then the sound in Taliesin, in Taliesin runs really weird because of the hills so we couldn't tell where these animals were and we hid in the in the, in the in, you know we, we used to live in the in Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, uncle's barn that he built for his uncle in the barn nice. that's in the middle between between um, it's called Midway Barn so it's between the school and the house mm-hmm. and we are here and then I'm, I'm YouTubing like animal sounds you know in the forest <laughs> <laughs> we found out that there were coyotes. It's like, damn it, we're going to die in this place, what we have done. And then, you know, when we arrived, Adam told us, you stay in the whole year, right? And we were like, damn it, you should have told me. We left everything in Beijing and we, we paid the rent of the gallery. We have like three rabbits in an apartment. And so we stayed the full year, you know. And then after that, we got invited by uh, UNL to be the high chairs. And then at the end, you know, we end up moving to U.S. We have, we relocated all of, all of our stuff we have in uh, in uh, in Beijing. We sent it to France, so it's still there, and we've been <laughs> around here quite a while already. <laughs> so like, that maybe leads into a, a conversation about you guys as architects 
but not in a place. Like you're not architects of buildings with foundations that stay in one place. So let's talk more about your sort of philosophical approach now that we've we've come to that, right? How did you start writing manifestos? And what I really want to ask, first of all, is was there a manifesto that inspired each of you at some point that made you desire to write them yourselves? I always tell my students this, uh, I, I used to say that experience, you know, my, my uh, what I recall when I was in school, the first time I really felt like architecture was for me, you know, apart from design or whatever, you know, that's the, like, ah, this is interesting, you know, there's something about this that makes me, you know, excited. It was with a quote that I read in SML Excel, and it was not cool, has thankfully. It was this quote by, uh, it, it was in urbanism, and I was like, holy shit, I agree with this. <laughs> Finally, with something in architecture, I agree, you know, I, I always thought it was this, like, a bourgeois elitist discipline that is, people that study in private schools are interested in making house for rich people, mm-hmm. and when I read this, it was the first time that I said, like, this is what I want to do. And it's by the Attila Kotanyi and the Situationists. And I didn't know, I didn't know initially who, who said it, because, I, of course, these things have no, no names. You have to go in the, in the bag, you know, in the glossary to find out who, who has said it. Right. But later on, I figured out who they were. And I was like, ah, oh, these people are actually interesting. And it says, now, okay, here it is. Urbanism. Urbanism doesn't exist. It is only an ideology in Marx's sense of the word. Architecture does really exist, like Coca-Cola. Though coated with ideology, it is real production, falsely satisfying a falsified need. Urbanism is comparable to the advertising propagated around Coca-Cola. Pure spectacular ideology. Modern capitalism, which organized the reduction of all social life to a spectacle, is incapable of presenting any spectacle other than that of our own alienation. Its urbanistic dream is its masterpiece. It's pretty amazing. Mm, nice. I can definitely see that in your work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was the first time I said, like, oh, I want to write. And I want to think about, you know, what's messed up about why why I didn't like architecture until this moment. And and why, you know, why is this school so white? And even in Puerto Rico. And why, why, uh, why, why all this, you know, how can we say something? You know, and I, I had also an amazing... Um, professor in, uh, of literature, uh, when I asked them all these questions, you know, like, what happened in 68? You know, can you tell me who these people are? And then they were telling me all these references, right, of, of you know, Natalie's country and people flipping cars upside down and striking and, and you know, like, questioning the university and, you know, trying to flip upside down ideology and, and, and you know, status quo and so on. And, and you know, pretty much has been <laughs> the same thing since then. You know, for me, I had to find in a book what that, what Natalie was growing up with, yeah. right? Like uh, Natalie's yeah, mom, your mom first strike was in kindergarten, <laughs> right? Yes, something like this. <laughs> yeah, I would say for me, it's a no, bit For you, it was in kindergarten. My, my first strike was in kindergarten. Wait, so... Natalie, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I heard recently because of the so many protests that have been happening that in the United States, we call it protest, but the translation of that word in French is manifestation. Yes, yes. Is that true? You're right. Like it's, I, I never thought of it like this, but yes. That, that's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful idea. It, yes. It, yeah. It's, it's true. I really like this idea too. <laughs> yeah. It's very powerful. So you were out as a kindergartner manifestating. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie's mom was the first university in France to adopt the first high school to adopt striking as part of the curriculum. Nice. Wow. So it really was just part of who you are. That's beautiful. Well, the French are quite good at protesting. <laughs> yeah. They're manifesting. Manifesting. <laughs> That's right. Protesting a routine every Thursday. 
Mm. I think it was it's interesting too because then going back to the question of manifesto, somehow my experience is a bit different because like studying, especially in La Villette, which is like you know very post sixty eight type of education, I was exposed to so many different practitioners that were not just the traditional architects. Like I was working with Chris Younes, who's a philosopher, and Philippe, a filmmaker. And I was in a department called Architecture and Philosophy. I think to, to kind of mix the discipline really helped me to understand the power of writing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in architecture and to bring it back to thinking. Because you know, in France, we really thought that architecture is also about thinking togetherness, right? Thinking, you know, I serve a society and how can we contribute in the best way possible? Right. And I think that's something that really, yeah, I was really lucky and very happy to find that type of platform early on in La Villette to be able to experiment with all those mediums and have so much given to me too, to to after uh, help to kind of articulate my thoughts and the works with crews. Yeah. So it was, it was easy for us to kind of align ideologically and click. Yeah. You know, it made <laughs> yeah. a lot of sense. And of course, it's a different perspective because I come from a from a colony, and Natalie comes from the colonizer, right? But the, <laughs> but, the, but, the but the idea is is is, is really similar, uh, and the questions and the discomfort and all that. So so I think it was um, it was quite easy to think about the practice that way. And the fact that the practice is called "What about it?" too, right? Like that's what "way" means. Uh, that is a question, and it's always like questioning and trying to see. And it goes back a little bit to 2008 because uh, I think that. That's why, you know, it was so formative for us this time, because then, because of, of course, not just that, but because of the economical crisis, you couldn't think just architecture as building. And you, you so what right. we do as young people just out of school, I think we both graduated something like two or three months earlier. It was our first, you know, kind of experience in the professional world. And suddenly we had to do something else. I think it was like a, a time when we thought, you know, maybe that's a time to start again, like thinking, writing, and try to, yeah. to to create other platforms that are not just meant to address uh, architecture. For and also realizing that, that there's no studio you're going to find that is going to satisfy you intellectually. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. the time to look for it, you know, the mm-hmm. desire to look for it. So at the end, you will have to make something for yourself. I mean, for that platform, because I... Uh, doesn't exist, right? So you had to figure out a way to make it happen. So that was... And going back also to the, how we uh, think, you know, architecture, the power of architecture somehow is also like, you know, starting to ask questions, like uh, being able to op- to formulate discussion, uh, articulate ideas. It's all this idea of like... Ask know, questions. And creating platform again to come together and to try to have like a more, more diverse uh, voices. That and it's be. fine to be angry, right? And, and find ways mm-hmm. to articulate that. And, and that's, that's what generates a discourse that is not following, you know, the hegemonic ideologies and, and the things that want you to, you know, repeat and, and just supply labor and, and so on, right? So how can you divert from that? How can you make a practice that is not just you being there as another body, you know, that is being exploited. And so how did you find the Taliesin School of Architecture to align with those ideas, those ideals? I mean, for us, it was uh, it was amazing because the reason why Aaron brought us was because he wanted us to, you know, give some uh, critical, contemporary, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, something to it, right? So we went there and then we were all writing together, you know, the new curriculums and we were generating this syllabus out of our practice pretty much, right? Like, how can we 
start from scratch, you know, uh, and, and at the same time fighting with the imitation of this legacy, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was not at all our intention to imitate at all Frank Lloyd Wright or, you know, at the end, you know, you end up becoming an expert because you live there. But that was not even my interest, right? Like, I know way too much about his life and, and way too much about the things that, that happened there and, and that, you know, good or bad or whatever, you know, and all the characters that pass around. And that's, that's a bonus of being there, right? It's, a, it's an amazing opportunity. But I think in a way, and, and you know, probably that's what Aaron was thinking, right? We have nothing to do with this institution. We, we're, we're just some young architects, you know, that have some really strong opinions and, and, and that like to question things. And that's what we were doing there pretty much. And, and you know, with our students too. And it will, be, it, was, it will be 24-7 of thinking about and talking about architecture. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. Aaron is like that too, right? Aaron is like super passionate about architecture and he, he leaves architecture. And then the students are there, you know, living in architecture. And then we're there, you know, pretty much teaching 24-7 because we want to reformat whatever was there, right? So we have to, from representation to to uh, to thinking, to references, you know, like we made a mag- we made a magazine in one of our classes that the students are still running now with a grant from the Graham Foundation. They could interview all the amazing architects around the world. You know, it, at the beginning, it was like forbidden to do anything that has been produced here. We have to find knowledge somewhere else, right? All the knowledge that is here is going to happen anyway. So you're going to absorb it anyway. So we have to be we have to be less of an island for the first time. It's not about Frankly, right? Right? Like find find the idea yeah. of the organic, the organic in the most pure sense. Absolutely. And try to you know, and, and extend, you know, and, and be contemporary and be critical you yeah. know, of your time. And, and mm-hmm. you know, and and we did uh, the students did some amazing projects, and and they are you know really amazing young people that are practicing now, and and hopefully we will see later on, you know, what they will do because they're amazing people, right? But it was a really unique opportunity to be 24-7 with architecture, right? Which we always wanted to do, but in Beijing, nobody was going to provide us that, that opportunity, right? Because we don't come, we're not, you know, I remember like at the beginning when we made one of our, our publications, we tried to do some lectures in the universities and they would tell us, oh, you're not famous, so who, who are you? Why would you want to come here? <laughs> and so that's, the, that's the attitude, right? So it was like, that's why we had to go to other channels that are not as institutional and and try to find you know this course and and you know engage with really interesting people. But here we were given the opportunity to you know live there. Happen to be in an amazing in two amazing sites, one more scary than the other, and and you know live with architecture and, and you know and participate in history, right? Because nobody can take this away. There's a, there's a chapter in history that is there made already, and it's it's amazing that we are given that opportunity and we and we take it you know as it is and and we are really passionate for everything we do and our students can attest you know particularly our Taliesin students it was a really intense year you know the school is changing and we are changing it you know and we are forcing everything and we are like all working together and making these amazing things and if you look at the the first shelters those, those are our first students you know they're amazing shelters these are uh, for me they're masterpieces of critical thinking in that place in that particular time and i think all these things come together to generate that you know together with the, with the with the fellows that came after too you know with amazing amazing uh, perspectives and helping them carry on the project but that change happened because we were allowed to participate in a, in a really free way you know uh, in a really dynamic way we were making manifesto readings performance things with the students it was like real real intense 24/7 so what are your thoughts about the school moving to Cosanti? Do you think that's going to make a big difference in the way that the school functions? Hopefully, you know, something amazing will happen. I mean, Chris is running it and Chris is an amazing guy, amazing architect too. 
I think hopefully something will good will, will happen. I don't doubt that something will happen. It's unfortunate, right? That the nation won, right? And that's what they wanted since the beginning. And, and I just wish karma comes back and, and you know and just returns the school there because it's stupid. It's just it's just the most evil side of capitalism. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. And again, I not so much about defending the legacy of an image of something, but rather like what what are you doing? Why are you kicking out students? You know, they are using this space and giving it life. It's so like evil, you know. Apart that the guy is a bully and just fire people, you know, even the people that were defending him and everything, you know. What's the point of this? What what's gonna be your legacy in a hundred years? That you you're you're an idiot and this thing failed because of you? You know, that that's what you want to keep just for money? How much money do you need anyways? Yeah. That it sort of encapsulates to me what really what I think architecture is facing right now, which is so aligned with what you all um you all's work is is that the there are still so many people that are so in love with this romantic notion of the hero, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright type image of some genius who can just make a beautiful building and then the building is done and it stays perfect forever. And that is just not the reality of how people inhabit the the, the built world right now, right? So, but, um, but also on top of that, I wouldn't even give him that much credit, mm-hmm. to be honest. He doesn't care about that. I, I'm honestly thinking that it's all about money it, it, because he, he doesn't even know architecture. This guy is a he's a, he's a, he's a business guy, you know. He yeah. just comes there to and he probably just repeats some lines he wrote mm-hmm. he read about Frank Wright. He doesn't understand right. where he's standing, you know. That's it's, and that's you know quite frankly. Yeah. It's clear, you know, crystal clear, you know. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's frankly, what's organic about making soap branded as <laughs> right. right. You know, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. And then that place is also really interesting, not only because of Frankly Right, right? Like the daughter of a, of a Stalin was living there at some point. You know? There's so many stories there that are not even related to architecture that make the place fascinating. And, and also the experience, I think, of, you know, living and working in the space is very particular yeah. in a way. And to fact, to remove it, to not, it defeats the only about purpose money. of, you know, why the place was was built in the first place. So it's... Um, um, I mean, look, look, at, look at our the country. People are dying because of money. All the economies are opening around the world because of money. It's not because it's the, the healthy thing to do. So it, it's just that in the micro scale. And it, it, we can see that it's really stupid because I, it's just very easy to see, right? Like you see the, the, the take out the life of the project. And of course you can make more money making weddings or whatever, you know? So at the end of the day, yeah, you're going to earn more money and that's going to be your legacy. You just messed up the place, you know? And so you guys are in the United States now. You're living in the United States now. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry that you are stuck here with this, <laughs> in this country that is, as you say, just, we all see what's happening and it's just stupid and unbelievable, but sorry. it is what it is. So let's fast forward to where, where you guys are now, which you're in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, we are in Pittsburgh. So, I mean, before we, I mean, how are you doing? I mean, everything is, the world is kind of like upside down right now. I mean, that that question is always, you know, I mean, who is doing well right now, but what's going on? Are you guys okay? You guys managed to stay healthy? Well, I don't know. We try to, right? We never know yeah. that's happening. You know, sometimes you feel bad, less better, you know. I don't know. We keep busy. I don't know if that's good, right? I, I'd rather yeah. be lazy and then not doing anything. But Well, the day that you guys get lazy is the day that we all need to start worrying because, I mean, you guys produce more than, than most anybody I know. Yeah, but Absolutely. that's not necessarily good, you know? Like, I think like being lazy is really important as an as a act of resistance, right? Self-exploitation is not good. And I feel like, you know, the, the constant hustle... Maybe it's not that good, you know, uh, at the end of the day. But 
Although I don't know how to operate, right? Mm-hmm. Not right now. I don't have the luxury to operate any other way. And I feel like we have an opportunity now to engage with a lot of things that we always want to engage, but people are not really paying attention. And now it's kind of like people are being forced to reckon with these things, which brings an opportunity to have that really uncomfortable dialogue. And, you know, we're in Pittsburgh and we, you know, as soon as the COVID hit, we made this thing called Loud Readers and we having this program where we invite, you know, you know, creating mutual aid and networks of solidarity all around the world, you know, find amazing people, you know, use a wolf in Cape Town or like Nobel in Belgium or, or, uh, or Diego Gras in Chile, you know, like trying to get our friends all around the world, you know, and bring them in these platforms. We, we kind of invented a trade school, a free trade school that run for 10, 10 days. And we have 25 or 26 speakers in 10 days, including Adam Petsky and Andrew Kovacs and, you know, again, the Wolf and Ryan Skabnicki and Dim Journal, the people, the people from Dim, Dim Journal and uh, Ray Ryan and Brendan Cormier. It was an amazing program, you know, of 10 days. Uh, and those things like keep us alive, right? Because then we can talk to students all around the world and we can help, you know, however we can, you know, because we know that they've been getting a really bad deal out of their education institutions. Uh, so that kind of, that, that gives me some sort of mental health, right? To, to, uh, yeah. to be in touch with people. Your, your Loud Readers series was really great. I mean, I, I love how it, it kind of combined, uh, I mean, it is very unique in that it, it combined, uh, video and audio and, and reading and bringing together such a diverse group of people. Is it, is it done? Are you, do you want to do another, another uh, installment of these, of these conversations? So, so the readers is still going. The trade school was a 10 day test. I think uh-huh. it worked pretty good. And people, you know, we still receiving works from students that of course people have different working schedules. People were in Korea, people were in, 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 in Iran or Brazil. People work in different pace, you know, but everything is available. So they, they keep on sending, you know, messages, e- emails with new work and stuff like that. But also we are looking at the world and trying to figure out how can we help with the tools we have. And I, I think it's going to be needed at some point next semester because it is not looking good, right? Like many schools are not going to open. Students are like, what the fuck, you know, with the visa, we don't know what's happening. It's ugly, right? So how can we, in our position of privilege, help, uh, you know, and mutilate and help each other? So probably we'll find also a way to do that. Uh, but the, the Love Reader series for now, maybe it's not going to be every day or maybe once every two weeks or every three weeks, depending, you know, when we get the, some of the speakers we want to, to engage with it, for now. It might take also different kind of formats. Different formats. It already kind of changed during the, the week of a trade school. We had... Some parts were more about loud reading, loud reading and lectures, and some part that was about world making, that was like workshop and share tutorials. So we like also the yeah. idea of thinking With how poets and, about food, you know, it's like many different, many different ways to engage with architecture, right? That is not just, uh, you know, brick and, and whatever, but also, you know, about architecture in the conventional sense. So, so that's, that's one thing. And, and again, we always try to find, you know, these ways to engage with, with the future, right? With, with, with young people that are also kind of anguished and, and they are, they don't know what's happening and, and they're getting a really bad deal. I think also it goes back in something that you, you mentioned when you were speaking of, you know, Frank Wright as the kind of image of a perfect architect, the male architect who, who does these fantastic houses and everybody right, is right. behind this thinking, you know, that this is true architecture. And I think we, I mean, we know since it's, now it's already 
I mean, we graduated in 2008, which was already a different kind of crisis. And now again, we are in another type of crisis. And we know that the, the world that is waiting for us is going to be different. So we need also, I think there's also an urgency to rethink what should be architecture and what can we do as architects? Right. Like, right. I think it's a fallacy to think that now we have to train all as being geniuses, as you as you mentioned. Yeah, you know? right. I don't believe in that idea of the genius, anyways. But um, I believe in solidarity and, and mutual aid, and you know, and, and making worlds together. And that, so I feel that in that spirit, all these projects are kind of helping us, you know, to do that. You know, we always collaborating. With our writer friends like Luis Antonio Rosa or Hilary Wiese or Ophelia Shan or, you know, Chen Hao, all these our friends and, and collaborators and people that are also trying to, to think together, you know, how can we make all these practices and ways to engage with making better worlds together? So, yeah. We've been doing that. Do you guys do all your own internet presence? Because you're just all over the place. There's so, there's so many. Uh, there's a, there's loud readers on Facebook, and there's a loud readers website, and there's loud... Do you guys manage it all? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a way, I think living in Beijing was like a like a prelude to live under COVID. So it was always WeChat, and you had to do 200 things at the same time. I had right, to like right. work with the artists, and I had to install the things myself. Because I, I cannot speak Chinese, so it will take me, it will be quicker for me to get the drill and drill the thing in the wall and right. to tell a worker how to do it. So it will be like, I'll do it myself. And at the end, you're like, you're like handyman. And then also, you know, we had like very bad internet in China because everything is like blocked. And when you have VPN, it slows down everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I feel like now it's like, you know, when you're, you're like only driving at 20 miles per hour and somebody drops you in the highway, that's how I feel with the internet here. <laughs> So that's why uh, you see, like, maybe there's a lot of things at the same time because also it's like we're in the highway. It's like, oh, you know, I just like find new platforms. We can use to do this. Yeah, we just discovered, like, we discovered uh, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I know what Instagram was. You know, I had an Instagram, but I post nothing for like four years. So when we came to US, you know, it's a pity because we don't have, and my phone was Chinese, so I couldn't, it was, Instagram was blocked when we were in Taliesin. But oh, as soon uh -huh. as my phone broke, then I got one in Nebraska, then we could start using Instagram. So we, we missed a whole year of Instagram in, uh, in uh, Taliesin that is very iconic. And unfortunately, we only have photos, but that would have been amazing to be documenting everything through Instagram. Oh, that's funny. That's and also, you know, also to be honest too, so because we live in China so long, we never developed trust in the cloud. So for me, because my computers will break and I will lose all the content, I, I develop a hoarding habit of storing everything online. So I use Facebook and Instagram and everything as, as my storage. Right, right. If I to find a project, I just go to, you know, it happens that my computer disappears or, or, you know, the internet is down at some point. When it comes back, I will be able to go to a web page and the things will be there. Yeah. And that's how I use it pretty much. <laughs> I want to talk about your amazingly composed anti-racist manifesto. Before getting into that, I mean... Cruz, if you could, if you could kind of, you know, give us a little context about, I mean, you're, you're a black man that has dealt with racism, obviously throughout your life, probably also in Puerto Rico growing up. And then you mentioned in, in Brussels and, and, uh, Europe and, um, right now, I mean, could you talk a little bit about what the Black Lives Movement means to you right now and what kind of inspired your Unmaking Architecture anti-racist manifesto? So I feel, and this is something that I've been talking about, you know, with students and with friends and stuff. I feel like we are in a historic, mom, historic moment because people are listening for the first time. 
and that never happened at this scale. Yeah. So all this was really evident, right? Like to grow up, uh, you know, at least I'm a man, you know, I have that privilege. I, I, I cannot imagine what it is to be a black woman, right? Or a black trans. So I'm still some sort of a, you know, straight black man, right? But yeah, you know, I, 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 I was, I grew up, you know, in a really poor neighborhood in Puerto Rico, you know, my dad made made us really aware since we were small that it was really important to be really proud of being black. I went to a private school with mostly white kids, a bunch of like racist experiences, went to an architecture school, mostly white people, you know. Of course, there's amazing people in all of this and really great friends, but in general, that's what you get, right? This is not a thing that is particular to U.S. or, you know, white supremacy is, is the heritage of colonialism, right? So it's all over the place. And so, you know, of course, it was uh, traumatizing, but also that's what you are, you know, growing up. And a lot of the decisions I, I've taken in my life have to deal with that, right? Like, why do I choose to go to Europe rather than to go to U.S. like everybody else, right? Because I'm not like everybody else. I don't know any other black Puerto Rican architect practicing, right? You know, at least, you know, like running a studio or something like that. So I have no role models in this way, right? People talk about Latinos, you know, in U.S., in, especially in academia, they mostly men white people white people that speak Spanish. So that's also another reality. It's never indigenous people like from Guatemala or from Mexico or whatever. It's white, white Latinos, you know, and they're white and it's white supremacy there too. That's why they have that power. That's why they have the European names and that's why they look the way they do, right? So it's still the same system and that we have to understand that. And the violence is as violent there too, right? Like that's why, you know, that's why poverty exists. And that's why poverty has a certain uh, hue in the pigment, right? And it's pretty much the same everywhere, at least in, in the parts of the world we know. You know, I was speaking there. I made a kind of a joke and serious joke that I, I think it's, we're going to turn into a project that we were going to start this database of, of U.S. architecture schools that have no black professors. And I started receiving all these messages. And then I received a message from a friend in South Africa telling me, do it in South Africa. In South Africa, the professors are also white. So it's not even about being a minority. That's a misconception. It's nothing to do with less or more. You know, it's about being white and not being white, right? It's about this real polarization. Uh, and architecture is super complicit, of course. You know, we work with the powerful and we build prisons and we build all these things. And, and those things, we've been talking about them in a more or less poetic way. You know, we have the post-colonial room and we do all these installations that... Uh, they're political, but they're not. You have to be really careful too, because uh, you get boxed in, you know, as things. Especially in the art world, it happens a lot, right? If I'm if I'm black and Puerto Rican, and my work deals with the colonial stuff. I only would be show as a black Puerto Rican working with the colonial stuff. So I would never be taken into consideration into consideration as a as an artist, you know, in the same way that Jeff Koons is free to be an artist, right? I had to be a black Puerto Rican artist in the same way that Chinese artists had to be a Chinese artist. Architecture works a little bit like that too, right? But we, we have our niches, you know. We we always try to to step away from that. One thing I that's that's been made very clear, you know, in the last month or so since the George Floyd incident. I mean, and and there's been countless incidents leading up to this that that should have kind of made this this more clear is that the the white majority just is so out of touch with the with the struggles and the and the and the types of you know racism and and oppression that's just been kind of built into our culture there's there's a moment right now where there are people that are recognizing that and that I mean, I'm, I'm mostly talking about white people that are recognizing that and, and realizing like there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done to get to a point to even start to beginning to understand the problem 
but the unfortunate the unfortunate side effect is that there's a whole other part of the country that has this attitude like fuck that like you know that's that's not my problem that that's not even a problem you know it's like it's this ignorance that that is surfacing so i mean how how this issue is making its presence in architecture. I mean, what are what are some of the things that that you think that, you know, architecture needs to begin taking much more seriously like right now as as a way to start making some real change that is going to kind of move this this issue and just the, the equality and respect for for everybody in a positive direction. So I, I had tomorrow we were giving we we're giving a talk to uh, I think some some young architects from AIA in Houston, and then we, we were preparing this presentation, and then uh, we finished with five steps for a better future, and it's just five points. It's quite simple, but I think they're pretty pretty ambitious, and they're very specific too. Like one is avoid working for the military. All the all the police equipment, all that stuff, that's all the, the products of a military that is based on a colonial apparatus that, of exploitation, right? Like all the policing, all the equipment, all this stuff is just the same, you know, it's the same animal. That's the first thing. Second, avoid designing any form of detention facility and dismantle the ones that exist. And that includes, you know, ICE and prisons, you know, that are basically, how is it? One out of every three black men would be in prison at some point. At the, that's a statistic in US. So if I'm two other people, I may be the one that ends there, right? Because of any reason, it could be something that I did, something that I didn't do, right? Because I, it's just a for-profit system that needs black bodies to be there. So I had to figure out ways that I don't end there, you know, by mistake, because it's very corrupt, right? So that's the other one. So if you're working with those two things, you are contributing to it, not only to the local racism, because the problem is that sometimes we get rid of our racism and we go somewhere else. We go to exploit somebody else, you know, in Africa or in Southeast Asia, right? So we, we have to stop this. That's not negotiable. Third, mm -hmm. we have to fight gentrification. So there's many arguments we can make, but to be honest, private property is theft. Every private property, especially in this continent, is theft. It's land that was stolen. Everything, right? On top of that, since we start acquiring new properties that, you know, Black people were always taken away from that, you know, uh, kept away from them. Once they were liberated, you know, between commas, how do we keep oppressing them, you know, by gentrifying the, the impoverished neighborhoods that tend to be Black, you know, and brown people? Uh, so that's another one, you know. That we have to find gentrification. There's no good gentrification. In the same way that there's no good capitalism, impossible. Four is demand institutional reconstruction. Our institutions are terrible. Universities that are funded with like land grabbing from uh, indigenous lands, private uh, uh, endowments that were built out of slavery. I hate when people need the Ivy League to make any point of reference to give value to anything. Ivy Leagues are all founded in this, all of them, and they're still profiting from it. Directly from slavery, directly from the debt in Puerto Rico. You know, there's like, you can find how Harvard is taking money from the, from the debt in Puerto Rico, you know, literally. This is just disgusting. And the fifth one is step aside and listen. I, I keep on seeing all these, you know, well-intended uh, people like, designers say, oh, you know, we're doing this auction to raise money for the bales, you know, and it's just a bunch of white designers. You're, you're still doing, perpetuating the same problem. We are invisible. We've always been invisible. I don't need you to help. I don't need charity. We don't need charity. We need you to stop killing us first. Second, to step out of the way, you know. If you want to give visibility, don't put a flashlight in my face. Just get the hell out of my son, you know, like Diogenes would say. And, and, and I think those five points kind of summarize everything, right? But it's really difficult to do. Like, working... With the military, 
it's very difficult to do because I have a list of the 30 uh, studios that are that work with the military, you know, the most profitable ones. HDR is first, Gensler is there, whatever. So it doesn't matter if you're doing social justice bullshit, if you're giving money to Black Lives Matter, you're working for the system of oppression, for the most abusive military system in the world, right? The U.S. military, and that's in the manifesto, is the largest polluter, is the, the biggest client of, uh, you know, the largest em emitter of CO2 emissions in the world is the military, you know. On top of that, and they like the biggest client of BP is the Pentagon, right? So you know, if you're gonna be ethical yeah. and sustainable, and you're working for the military, you're bullshitting it. It's interesting, you know, at times like this where you start to realize that environmental problems, cultural uh, oppression, wealth disparity, it's all tied together. I mean, and it all started, you know, like transatlantic slave trade. Come here, kill all the indigenous people, kidnap. 30 million Africans, distribute them in the Americas, force them to work to produce things to make your food taste better. Sugar, basically. That's that's pretty much why you bring Africans here because uh, indigenous people were dying to quit. So you bring strong Africans so they can produce sugar for you, right? It's just the, the culture of deliciousness and productivity, right? And then tobacco and, and cotton and whatever, you know, but that's pretty much it, you know? And, and that's all capitalism. And that's, you know, you own land so you can have slaves to produce you wealth. And then after there, you create a police to find out where the slaves went. And then when they're not slaves, you keep the police there to protect your property that you stole in the first place, right? So so where are we gonna start? So at least we can start with the military and you know not working with these things, you know, and, and you know stop gentrifying. And if you're replacing people to make your architecture, don't make architecture. Go and serve soup if you want to be helpful. Mm -hmm. I feel that that's you know that that we, we got to the point. I mean, how much how much can the earth take? <laughs> Anyways, but that's what you yeah. uh, like about thinking. You know what is a real sustainability? Yeah, real sustainability is thinking of society that are sustainable that are uh, which we're not right which are not, but gives the right and quality of life for everybody. And until we reach this level, can we, it's, it's, it's again, like it's very difficult just to isolate, uh, as you Impossible. mentioned, like some, you know, topic out of the other, like uh, thinking just of uh, climate change, thinking just about the violence that we see and oppression that we see now, all this comes together and we really need to address it as one. Yeah, and, and, and also, you know, so we were thinking about this idea also of the, what's the colonial footprint of your architecture, right? Don't talk to me about mm -hmm. the CO2 emissions now. Talk to me about how all those economies of exploitation are benefiting the architecture you're making today. That's what I'm interested in, in studying. Yeah, that's really well well worded in in your manifesto, which we're going to have a link to from our from our show notes. And I highly recommend everybody put aside some time. It's the kind of it's. Uh, I have to admit, I had a thesaurus at my side as I was reading through it. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's 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 not the kind of you need you need to you need to you know uh, quiet yourself down and really and really give it some thought because it's deep and it's, and it's, uh, and it, and it really covers a lot of ground and, and it really addresses the the problem that, that we're being forced to, to face right now, uh, in a serious way. It's also, it's extremely accessible if you give yourself that time to, to read yes. it because it's written in this paragraph format where each paragraph starts with the letter that spells out Black Lives Matter. You can digest a paragraph and think about it for a while. 
and then come back to it later and do the net, do the L paragraph and think about it for a while. So it's extremely accessible. That's a really good point. I mean, if, if I, I would recommend that that's a good way to do it, you know, maybe, maybe once a day, just focus on one, one point from that manifesto and really let it sink in. Because I think this is the kind of text that requires some serious thought and and some because it's uh very impressive and and i mean i think that you know the problems we're seeing right now with the way that this country is handling the coronavirus is a direct result of the of of all the cracks in in our system it's not a crack that's the system it's designed yeah, it is by design right and it's necro you know and we talk about it there too right necropolitics you know it's the politics of the commodification of death right yeah. these people are making money out of you dying and in the same way that the military makes money out of people dying, it's the same system, you know. It's a it's profit. It's, it's, you know, they make money out of sending us to prison. They make money out of us dying because they can, you know, privatize and capitalize more on it. So I, I wouldn't yeah. say that the cracks, they are the very system, you know, that is working really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for people that, you know, prefer to watch than read, there's, you know, 13th, the, the documentary 13th really gets gets to the core of that, of that, uh, you know, for profit system that's that's causing a lot of the problems that were that that has, uh, you know, kept us back. And, and I wanted to say also that we, we just recently published in a Puerto Rican newspaper the Spanish version of uh, of the manifesto that it has even more words because in Spanish it's las vidas negras important so we have to make new parts that were more talking about the type of racism that you will get in Latin America that is different than the one in US where you have words like brown that we don't have but we have mm. all this other colorism and and you know and, and and different ways to be racist to the indigenous populations and to and to is is still really strong anti-black racism, even if people don't dare to talk about it in the same way. So that that also will be available on the website too, if anybody wants to read it in Spanish. Wonderful. Yes, I, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I, I could <laughs> understand Spanish. My my wife is is uh, Peruvian. I, I we go down to Peru every year. I feel so embarrassed. I'm the only one. Everybody has to speak English just for me. So it's uh, it's about time I, I learn it because I'm sure that uh, many many texts like this are probably. Uh, uh, that much more interesting to be able to read in in a, a different language. Um, so I'm I'm actually going to have to wrap this up pretty soon because I I, I need to to run somewhere. But before we finish, I want to also uh, talk about your new book, Narrative Architecture. It's a beautiful, beautiful book uh, published by Dutch publisher NAI. What? How long were you guys working on that? Can you can you just uh, uh, talk a little bit about about the book? So we've been working on this book ever since we met in a way, it deals a bit with our thesis, you know, that we were working with, you know, alternative methods of representation, but it fin- finally came into, you know, into form. We got a, we got a grant from the Graham Foundation in 2000, something, 2016 or 2017. And that kind of triggered the production of the book. We went to the Alps, you know, the parents of Natalie took us to the Alps. We make all the images there, which is kind of nice. Sounds really romantic, but it's true. And, you know, we could add, you know, because uh, we've been working so long, but finally we could give shape to some of the ideas we've been working with, with some of the theories that we are creating in projects. You know, so the idea is that we wanted to frame this history of 20th century architecture, you know, what people think is alternative practices and question it, you know, in relationship of, of the potential of a critique of ideology, you know, and, and the actual role of narrative architecture today. And then at the end, we ended with the appendix. There are these projects that are, you know, how do we 
engage with the practice of narrative architecture. And I feel that's like opening another dimension of projects that we are going to be developing and, and projects that friends have been also developing, you know, using these tools to, to engage with critics of ideology. I think it has a lot of potential, particularly now that we are really interested, all, all, all of us together, right, to, to engage with, with, with hegemonic discourses and to question them, right? Like the idea that we need to question the, 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 the role of modernism, as it has been taught to us, the, you know, the things that we accept as given and how can we create alternative discourses that are more diverse and inclusive and, and you know, and, and hardcore and, and critical and clinical, right? As we, as we call it in the book. So, I mean, we have some amazing graphic designers of Team Thursday in, in, in the Netherlands that made a design, you know, together after discussing with us. So I think we are really happy with the way that, you know, even the book as a project, as an object is, is, is really amazing, uh, you know, Everything has an explanation, you know, from the, the dots to the typography, the type of uh, fonts that are used, the scale of the text, you know, the way the, the footnotes are used in the book that are zooming in and out. I think it's a really comprehensive project that can be read in many different ways, you know, with these two parallel stories. One, you know, that the legitimate story that we are questioning of, of modernism and, and, you know, and, and clinical architecture. And then the parallel one with the images that is telling the story of images images that never existed, but that we created to, to talk about this critical form of architecture. Did you guys create all the artwork? All of it. Yes. That's oh, beautiful. I, I really, I really, <laughs> oh, I really man. dig this style. Yeah. <laughs> and so can people buy this on uh, all the regular? Uh... Totally. It's an Amazon. I mean, the, we, we also, we, ha we have some copies that we've been selling some from our webpage because at some point, because of the virus, there was no books in US. So we were delivering them by hand and going to the post office. We're still doing that. And there's like a limited edition ones with some handmade postcards that are pretty cool. So those ones are, are online. Uh, if they go to our webpage in shop, they can find them there. Otherwise, it's in Amazon. If they're in Europe, they can find it in a bunch of bookstores, you know, because it's a uh, it's NIE 010 publishers. That also amazing experience working with them. We we'll recommend to anybody that has uh, some critical project that they think deserves some really beautiful platform. Um, so yeah, that and, and we're planning also to do, you know, book releases once the world is not falling in so much pieces. So, so hopefully we can, you know, have an opportunity also to keep expanding the presentations of the book and so on. Excellent. Well, I will make sure that we include links to, uh, to where to get the book on, on both your website and, uh, other, other, uh, online and physical retailers, if people are able to get out to real bookstores, um, it was a real pleasure talking to you guys. Thanks so much for, for, uh, putting aside the time to, uh, give us tell us your story. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot, you know, I've been following you guys for yeah. years and, uh, it's nice to hear a little bit, you know, about uh, a little backstory behind, um, yeah. I don't know if you remember that you guys when we, we met for the first time in Chicago, the, the interview got deleted somehow and we had to do it again. Oh, oh right. Yes. I remember that yes. now. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was funny because the, um, the interview, yeah, there was, they had, they had technical difficulties and I remember they all, also, we lost Ewan Bond's interview and, but there was, we found somebody that was actually videotaping the entire thing 
but they wanted to charge us a crazy amount of money to get the uh, the audio from them. So, so we had to we had to lose it. But yeah, that was uh, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, great talking with you both. Seriously. Yeah, really, really good. And I hope that I uh, hope the situation in Pittsburgh is okay. And uh, I hope that you know, hopefully, we'll uh, uh, we'll kind of start digging our way out of the mess that we have found ourselves in and in many different ways. But I think, I feel like, uh, I feel like, I feel optimistic about where we're, where we're headed, you know? And I feel like, uh, like with, with crises like this, uh, positive things can come out of it. And I'm, I, I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing to contribute to, uh, to that positive change. We are optimistic. Optimism is like our... That's our fuel. Right. <laughs> yes. Optimism is our fuel. There's your name, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You guys. Thank you. Bye. And that concludes our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a comment and rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.